Good evening, everyone. Um, can I echo George's welcome tonight? Uh, it's great um, to be here in person, and it's great if you're joining us online as well. And thank you to the band. It was just lovely to be able to worship in the way that we have just done. Um, we have just heard from George that this is the penultimate um, study or talk on First Samuel. And I've been intrigued in what the area looked like um, in which in this setting is. This, tonight we're going to talk about a battle. And what did it look like? And um, we did a bit of research on YouTube and found um, a, a drone footage. So it's about two minutes, and we're going to show that now, just to give a bit of an impression of the terrain, the landscape. Um, that is a, sort of a, a still from it. But just have a wee moment just to look at this um, terrain, if it comes up. Canyons that, that you saw is where essentially this, this, this war between Saul uh, as king, the first king of Israel, um, took place, uh, and he was fighting the Philistines. And Saul and Samuel, uh, Saul and Samuel and David, who came after him, were very familiar with this terrain. And in the morning in, in Crescent Church, we have been studying Psalm 23, and in Psalm 23. David talks about, lo, I walk in the valley of the shadow of death. And what we saw there was a deep gorge, a deep canyon known as wadis. And in the darkness, when the sun drops, it is so dark. And it reminded David as a shepherd of the valley of the shadow of death. Um, the cameraman who, who wasn't 
Ruben, who so happened, he wasn't out with his um, drone taking footies with someone else, um, started, I suppose, from the Israeli side. And as you looked across the canyon, that's where the Philistines would have been um, situated in this place called Michmash. So we're going to turn to Samuel chapter 13 and read the text as we have it in front of us. And we're just going to read the first um, 14 verses. Saul lived for one year and then became king. Um, the numbers in, in verse 1 uh, have been greatly contested, and I'm not going to attempt to explain them. He wasn't just one year old, and he wasn't a king at two. He probably, um, as we see down, his son Jonathan was a commander, um, so I'm guessing um, he probably was in his 40s at this stage, thereabouts, or a bit older. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 men were with Saul at Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan, his son, in Gabeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. Saul blew the trumpet throughout all of the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said, Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered a fight with Israel, 30 or 3,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Ben Evan. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard pressed, the people hid themselves in caves, in holes, in rocks, and in tombs, and in cisterns. And some of the Hebrews crossed the fords of Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at, Gilead, at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. And I think that means all the people that were left followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished the offering, offering the burnt offering, and behold, Samuel came. Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Saul said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people who were scattering from me and you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, when the Lord would have established your kingdom for, over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. 
So Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army, and they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. <clears throat> Let's just take a minute to see where we are in, in the story. Um, Israel, as you know, um, was a nation that was rescued uh, from slavery in Egypt. They had spent 400 years there um, <clears throat> building pyramids for the Egyptians um, and having to work very hard. And even their firstborn, as Moses was one of an example of, was told to be cast into the Nile. So a nation that was, and God rescued them via Moses. Forty years after the miraculous recovery from Egypt, across the Red Sea, and seeing the Egyptians been drowned behind them, they moved to the promised land that was promised them. And they moved with a steady pace. But when they got there, when they got to the border, you will know that they sent in 12 spies. And 10 of them came back with a bad report, and two with a good report. And when they came back from spying out the land, the message was simple, we cannot go in there. I know we have left Egypt behind. I know we're in, the wilderness is really our home for this moment. But if we go in there, the giants of the land will kill us. We cannot take on the giants. And if we get to Samuel 17, you will hear of um, Goliath, who was probably typical of some of those giants. They may have exaggerated a little, but they saw people who were bigger, than themselves, better armed, and they were frightened. And as a result, they had to wander around that wilderness for 40 years because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief to trust in the God who brought them out of Egypt, the God who rescued them from the Egyptians, unbelief crept in. And then again, Joshua led them across um, the Jordan and they conquered the land. After Joshua was there and Joshua was dying, he made them this great covenant. He reminded them of their covenant. They were a covenant nation that God had promised him. And he said for himself, as for my family and me, we will serve the Lord. And the people replied, that is a massive, whatever it was, a million and a half people, maybe more. We would never leave the Lord to serve other gods. What a promise as he moved into the land, after they had 40 years behind him and all the pain, all the sufferings, all the lessons that they had learned, they made this promise. The Lord our God brought our fathers and us out of slavery in Egypt. And we saw the miracles that he performed. He kept us safe, whether we went among the nations which we passed. You'll know the story of Jericho, for example, how that they simply marched round the walls and blew their trumpets and the walls tumbled, and the nation, the, uh, that um, city nation of Jericho was, was captured. As we advanced into the land, the Lord has drove out the Ammonites and we, who lived there. So we also serve the Lord. He is our God. And for 325 years, post-Joyce, it was turmoil. The nations had their judges. Judges were not kings because they believed that God was their ultimate king. They, as they told Joshua, we would serve God. And as the judges came, 12, 13 of them, things were up and down. 
The gods of the Baals and Asherites Asherites were, were creeping in amongst them again. And this pure faith and religion was corrupted by worshiping other gods. And because of the chaos, it says in Judges, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Each tribe decided we will govern ourselves. We won't listen necessarily to what the judges are saying, whether they're good or bad or indifferent. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes because of this decline in governance, this decline in responsibility and accountability. Eli's sons, they were rogues and rascals who stole from the temple. And God sent Samuel, who this book is named after, essentially a miracle child. And he trusted God. And he brought the word of God to the people. And he, he judged this, this nation. He did his little circuit around. And he was a prophet. And he was their priest. And he guided them. Unfortunately, history repeated itself. Just as Eli's sons were scoundrels, so was Samuel's sons. The people became exasperated. The people wanted someone to lead them. Just like the other nations. To bring coherence. To bring leadership. To bring guidance. To bring something that was definite. Because they'd lost their faith. They'd lost their trust. They'd lost their confidence in God. We wonder if we ever ever happened to us. As Christians, do we have those moments where we lose our confidence in God? And we think that we need someone who is, we can look up to. Someone in front of us physically that can lead us and guide us. That we can listen to their words and act on their commands. They did. And, David, and Samuel was dismayed. But God told Samuel, it's not you that you've rejected it's actually me they've rejected. They've rejected me as, your, as their king. And they wanted a king. And they cast lots, and one by one they found Saul. And Saul was a very appealing person. He was tall. He was handsome. He had charisma. And he was going to lead the people exactly what they wanted because he matched what was around them. And you think of the David and Goliath. This man, Goliath, and others who were around them from the Philistines, we wanted man for man. We wanted to match what's out there. And so often in our thinking, so often when we look around, our confidence wanes and we think we need to match the adversary. We need to match the opposition man for man. That's what the Israelites tried to do when they elected Saul. And Saul was not God's appointed person. God allowed it. Because in Genesis 49, old Jacob, as he was dying, he told the tribe of Judah that from this tribe will become your king. But Saul wasn't from this tribe. Saul was from the land, uh, Saul was from Benjamin, uh, the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Benjamite. In fact, the Benjamites in the end of Judges were in a civil war. They were, had dealt so appallingly in their government and in their, uh, in their judgments that they ended up in a civil war with the rest of the tribes. And yet, from this tribe, they elect Saul. The declension and the knowing God had reached the point they didn't actually know that this shouldn't have been 
their king. Their Bible knowledge, their understanding of God's words was so poor that they elected Saul. In this story, when we get to chapter 13, Saul is king. And, and Saul uh, had a, um, is setting up his first his standing army. He had 3,000 of, a, of a, an army. And um, Samuel had predicted this, that he, he would take the best people. And he continues for 40 years to do so. Um, here he is. And if you were a reporter, if you were Jeremy Bowen or reporting back from, from way out in the Middle East, and you, you had Hugh Edwards in, in London, and Hugh was saying, what is happening out there? I hear there's, there's disruption. There's on, what is happening, Jeremy? Tell me what's happening. And he's standing up on one of those windy hills and he's saying, well, you, Saul is going for it. Saul has assembled his army. He is making an impression at long last that people were behind him and he's going to make an impression on the Philistines. The Philistines were to the west. The Philistines had five major cities and there were strong, impregnable cities. And Saul had embarked on this crusade that he was going to take it on. Alone he was going to do it. He was going to be a great leader and show them what has to be done. And Hugh Edwards might say, well, how's it going? You've been there for a week. Well, it started off well. There were trumpets blasting and there was a small garrison taken by Jonathan and they got very excited. And he called all the people up to the hill of Gilgal where he was anointed king. And everyone got very excited. But as the week wore on, people started hiding. Why did they hide? What's wrong, Jeremy? Why are they hiding? Well, they got a glimpse of this Philistine army. It is a mighty machine. They have horses, they have chariots, they have army like the sands of the desert they're standing in. And they're hiding, the Israelites, the Hebrews, are hiding in caves and thickets and so on. They've taken fright. Well, Jeremy, would it not be a good idea for, for Saul to engage quickly? Take them by surprise. Well, we're not sure what's happening. He's dithering. He's waiting seven days. There's supposed to be the prophets coming. This old guy is going to come along and he's going to give him direction. But he's unsure what to do. And that is where we have the story. And let's look at it. Let's look at what was at the nub of the problem. It essentially was a self-inflicted crisis. Many of the crises that we face in life are off our own making as Christians. We tend to want to go alone. We tend to be badly prepared, and we tend to mislead others around us. It's a common characteristic. Saul rushed into this. He, had three he hadn't taken a proper analysis of, of, of the Philistines. The Philistines lay to the west. They lay to the seaward side. They had great technology of the day. They had swords. They had horsemen. They had chariots. The swords were sharp. They could slice through anything that that the Israelites threw at them. But the Israelites didn't have that. They, they had probably two swords between them, Saul, it would seem, and Jonathan. The rest were sort of um, blunt agricultural implements that were, had been improvised as war, as a war effort. So he rushed into this conflict largely unprepared. He then took the credit for someone else's courage. We often do that, don't we? Jonathan felt guided, and he took this small garrison, 
and it fell. Um, and as soon as that was heard, Saul, he said, get the trumpets going. The trumpets were blown across the land. Get the people here. And it says, and the people were called to join Saul at Gilgal. And it looked as if this was the day. This was the day that the Israelites were going to avenge all the pain that the Philistines were inflicting upon them. That they were going to become an equal in authority in the land. They got their king. They felt they were becoming of age. They felt that they could show who they really were. Saul had misled the nation. Because all of a sudden, not with the benefit of a drone, obviously, but from their elevated sight, they could see the Philistine amassing their armies. And someone came back and said, Saul, you've got to come and see this. You've got to come and see what the Philistines are doing. They had 3,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen in the chariot and a multitude of troops that surrounded them like the sand on the seashore. And they were camped in front of them at Michmash. And when the people saw this, when people heard and looked, they started to hide. The courage evaporated very quickly and they left. Saul had to find a solution to this. And Saul contemplated springing a surprise. He would send out his troops, 600 of them or so were left, but he, 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 there was something he had to do before he could do that. Every war, the Philistines, the Israelites, it was traditional to make a sacrifice. So we have this pagan, uh, Saul adopts this pagan approach and he says, I had to win favor, I have to seek favor of God. You can skip over that little phrase very quickly. What does it mean? Well, before an army, if it was a pagan army went out, um, they were all prepared. And the last thing, they would bring their, their pagan priest along and they would call upon the gods to be favorable with them, to go with them. So it was quite, um, I suppose, a scene. And it was quite, a, there was a lot of jeopardy in it um, as they called upon their gods. You will know the story of Elijah and Mount Carmel. And Elijah mocked him as he asked the gods of Baal and Ashtoreth to come and consume the sacrifice. And they cut themselves and they danced and to, to all hours of the, the day. It was that idea of calling in favor from the gods. Saul misunderstood who God was misunderstood the covenant relationship that the nation had with God, that God would be with them because he was their nation. He was their chosen people from Egypt. He was their chosen people in the wilderness. He was their chosen covenant people as invaded Canaan with Joshua. He was their chosen people for 325 years with the judges. And Saul said, I have to, I have to win the favor of God. I have to make sure that God is on my side before I can, take, I can engage in this war. Even though I have 600 trembling men left and I'm looking at 3,000 horsemen and so on, I still have to do that. So Samuel had warned him not to do anything until he come, seven days. Chapter 10, we get a, a reference to this seven days that we would have to wait. Samuel had thrown down this little test for Saul. Wait seven days. God often does that. Wait he told the disciples to wait. And they waited. 
He will tell us at times to wait. To wait on God leading us out. So always to wait on God's plans to be told him through Samuel. It was to wait on what the instructions would be, irrespective of the situation around him. But he couldn't wait. And he, he um, decides to act as commander-in-chief. I'm in charge of this army. I'm the first king. I will, I will decide what, I, what we're going to do. And <clears throat> in the text, we read that he felt, forced himself, he says, to give the, the, the burnt offering. Right on the last day, on the last maybe hour of the day, he made this burnt offering. He took things, matters into his own hands. He was showing leadership. The people were deserting him. He needed to act decisively. It was a pagan-based solution. Often, we could easily fall into that trap. We make our plans, and then we ask God to bless them. We plead in God to come with us in our journeys or in our plans and go on, rather than ask God to guide us and to lead us. But God has promised he will never leave us or forsake us. As the disciples went out after Pentecost, uh, after Jesus' at resurrection, uh, uh, yes, at the resurrection and his ascension, he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And that promise still stays today. He will lead us and he will guide us. Samuel arrives and um, he says, what have you done? I suppose someone said to Saul, by the way, by the way, he's, he's, he's on his way. He's on his way. Uh, and Saul would like to meet him. <clears throat> and Samuel probably knew what had happened because he could probably see the smoke and, and so on, what had happened as he approached him. And this, this words, what have you done? What an echo has it that's come down through time. It started in the Garden of Eden when God said to Adam, what have you done? And of course, at that point, Adam tried to blame his wife Eve and say, she gave me to eat of the fruit. And here we have the same excuses being offered by Saul. I was forced to do it. And Samuel says, you have acted foolishly. Acted very foolishly. You have not commit, kept the commands of the Lord. You're only asked to do one thing, to wait. Wait seven days. Wait until I come when we have the sacrifices. Wait until I give you the word of the Lord and the guidance of the Lord on what to do next. You've taken matters into your own hand. You've taken executive decisions. You've acted as the only commander-in-chief. You've ignored God. Your kingdom shall not continue. Devastating words to be the first king seemed harsh. After all, he had beaten a garrison with Saul um, just a week beforehand. Why was that? And the men were trembling around him. People were hiding in caves. I said, Has Samuel not been very unreasonable here? Samuel not having no consideration for the, for the circumstances that Saul finds himself in. Samuel wasn't at the front. Samuel didn't see the army. Surely he is misguided. Why is this such a severe punishment? Why did he say, actually, there's a person coming? God has already selected his king, David, the young shepherd boy, the youngest of the family of Jesse, of the tribe of Judah, a man after God's own heart. 
A man who would know to put God first in his life. A man who would look to God. Even in his moment of sin, he would say, it's before you and before you alone I have sinned. Was it harsh? And I want just sort of to finish up with this. Saul was an extremely poor example. God had endorsed him as king and he had set an extremely poor example to those around him. God had made, him his, made them their leader and he had mistreated the sacrifice. He disobeyed God. It was severely um, compromising God's authority. It was a fatal error of judgment. In many ways, in many ways, Samuel saved Saul and his 600 men that day. If it had taken on the Philistines, if it had marched down to meet them at the, at the pass of Michmash, it would have been a bloodbath. The Philistines would only have to unleash a proportion, a small proportion of their army, and 600 men had been wiped out that day. And God's chosen people would have been humiliated in front of everyone. It was a fatal error of judgment in Saul's part. Not a leader after God's own part. As we lead in various aspects in church and in worship and so on, we have to seek God in all our ways. We don't lean, as Solomon said, onto our own understanding. It is God who is our guide. And because we can become a poor example, we could be errors of judgment and we're not leading after God's own heart. I don't, what can we learn from this? <clears throat> One of the passages that I, I've selected is Matthew chapter 6. It talks about prayer again. It talks about petitioning God when we're in difficulty. And Matthew chapter 6 is the, is the chapter that has the Lord's prayer. The disciples asked him to teach us to pray. And in that portion, Jesus tells the disciples, he says, don't be anxious about your life. Your heavenly Father knows everything about you. O ye of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we are? Where the Gentiles seek after these things. But your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. We pray to a God who knows our needs before we ask him. So, God knew everything about the army and the Philistines. God knew everything what was happening that day for, about Saul. God knows our worries today. Before we come to talk to God, we don't come to God that we need to get win his favor. We don't come to God who needs to be placated or um, um, we have to appease him. We have to um, win his favor. God, we are ready the children of God. He loves us. He sent his son to die for us. He, gave the, he paid the highest, ultimate price to make us his own children. He knows everything about us. He knows what makes us tick. He knows our worries. He knows our fears. And he's looking after us. When we come, we ask him. And he leads us. In that same passage, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says the Gentiles repeatedly little phrase, repeatedly ask for the same things. Why do the Gentiles repeatedly ask them, please? Because they don't believe they're praying 
to God who is generous and gracious and loving and kind. But we do. We pray to God who knows everything about us. Not one sparrow falls to the ground without being knowing what has happened to it. Are we not more valuable than one sparrow? When we also go to Matthew chapter 8, we get another story. Um, and all that other story is about um, the disciples in the, in the boat. And we tend to think that when Jesus arose that he rebuked the waves. We rush very quickly to that part of the story, which is great. Just shows us who the God that we trust. But it also was a rebuke for the disciples. You have little faith. I'm in the boat with you. I'm in the storm with you. Do you not know? Do you not trust me? Do you not consider me worthy of looking after you in this boat? In the sea that I called in, I spoke into existence. The winds that I spoke into existence and controlled by the words of my power every day. Do you not trust me? And how we act. They were rebuked that day as well. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. This is the kind of man he is. We heard about the first king of Israel, Saul. We heard about his arrogance and his disobedience. We heard about his pagan-fueled ideas and, and worshiping God. This is the last king, king of kings, the last king of Israel. And he's on another hill, Golgotha's hill. And he bears his, the title, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And it's by his obedience that many shall be made righteous, Paul tells us. For as though by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, even through the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Today we'll see him coming with the marks of Calvary and he will be declared king of kings because of his obedience. He could say in Hebrews 10, though I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, O God, to do your will. He could tell his disciples that it is, it is his meat to do the Father's will. He could buy in Gethsemane's garden and say, let this, not cup, this cup of Calvary pass from me, but your will be done, not mine. Because he loved us, because he cared for us, and because he came to rescue us. At the end of First Samuel, I think it's chapter 26 or so, um, forgive me if I got that wrong, um, in the King James Version, we get this title, I've played the fool. Saul, when he was seeing his kingdom at the end of his 40 years, slipping away, and he wanted to murder David, God's anointed, the man after God's own heart, he wanted to kill him, and he pulled back. And he looked that young to be king in the face and he said, I've played the fool. I've made mistakes. I've disobeyed God, and my kingdom is going, is gone. Occasionally we say we have played the fool with something that's maybe very small and very temporal. We feel foolish. It would be awful to reach the end of life 
and to think and to say, I've played the fool. Mistakes I've made, the errors of judgment. I disobeyed God. I haven't trusted him the way I should have. I prayed in a way that I doubted God. I didn't let him lead me and say, I've played the fool. Or I simply have rejected him. I've rebelled completely. Psalm 14, David says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story that takes us back over 3,000 years, and yet it's so fresh to us tonight. It reminds us that God is looking for us as Christians to obey him and to trust him. God of all comfort, God of all grace can meet our needs in every circumstance of life. Father, we thank you that you have sent your son to meet the greatest need of all, that you have made us righteous through the death of his son on the cross. Father, if there's anyone here tonight who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal savior, that they will come and say sorry and accept him tonight as their savior and as their Lord and trust him for time and for eternity. For I ask these things in his name. Amen.